0: Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host Jimmy Rowe along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. You mentioned that chapters four and five in your book are are a unity. Uh, the, the the one added element then in in chapter five that you discuss positively is the rule of faith, mm-hmm. uh, which is a little bit tricky to to really wrap your mind around. So I think um, it'd be helpful if you could explain uh, to our listeners what the argument is and and even what is the rule of faith and where can we find it.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, chapter four, of course, was the diversity, and so mm-hmm. chapter five was the unity. And what mm-hmm. I argue is that despite those differences, Bauer was wrong, we would argue, in the sense that there was no core unification of, of Christian beliefs across the empire. And we uh, would argue, of course, and we did in our book, Andreas, that, that in fact there's great evidence for for theological unity amongst Christians, at least on the big points. Mm-hmm. Um, and And th- there's lots of things that point to that, but one of the things that points to that is the rule of faith. Um, which is, if the listeners aren't familiar with, is is a is a trend in early Christianity to take the core beliefs of of the New Testament writings and summarize them down in a way they could be articulated orally and articulated and sometimes in sometimes a written form and articulated briefly, summarizing what we believe as Christian. So it's a bit of a creedal statement of sorts, mm-hmm. although not nearly as formal as later creeds, um, and and really almost a rehearsal of our truths, usually starting with creation. Uh, and moving through the fact that God is the creator, and then, in fact, who Jesus is and why he came and what he did. And then usually it's a reference to, um, even at the end, sometimes a reference to the fact that he'll return. So it's a full redemptive historical mm-hmm. picture of what we believe as Christians. And why it was useful is that it was it was a way to, to capture, summarize in in, in, in in brief form what Christians believed in a way they could all rally around it. Um, and so we see that rule of faith expressed in various ways throughout early Christian writers. There wasn't a one way to say it. Um, there was multiple ways to articulate it. But the same trend line is there that you can see plainly. And so we see it all the way from Irenaeus all the way up uh, uh, into different writers, even in the Apostolic Fathers and beyond. And so it's, it's a remarkably widespread phenomenon. And I think it's gotten far, little, far too little attention.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is not my immediate field, as you know, but I'm just fascinated by the fact that here you have the period, you know, after the New Testament, but before you have those more formalized creeds where you, as you mentioned, you, you don't have a standardized form of a rule of faith, uh, but you have, in one way or another, with slight variations, uh, just about every significant church father in the second third century uh, having their own version of of, of, of the, the basic Christian story
1: yeah absolutely and, and I think the thing to remember is that there's no church body that could have enforced that you know there's no church right. government that could have dictated that you can't you can't Im- impose that on that diverse Christian movement and so it has to be sort of grassroots from the bottom up and I think mm-hmm. that is a, a telling fact and the the other the other thing I pointed out that chapter that I thought was fascinating is that that um, if, in fact, heretical groups had gained such ground as Bauer w- wants us to believe, then why is it that none of the church leaders were, one of the, one, any of the recognized bishops of the church were, were heterodox? All of them were orthodox. I think this is a fascinating, there's a big gap there. We have no known bishops, et cetera, that were Gnostic or, or any of these uh, uh, heretical sects. And I think that that, that shows you that, that the dominant party was still what what was called the great church, which was the, the church that held to the rule of faith.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, 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 it it's almost contagious. I, I'm beginning to get really excited about the second century just talking to mm-hmm. you because there's this fluidity, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're still in a period before the great church councils mm-hmm. in the you know, third, fourth, uh, fifth century, and so forth, uh, where you already see this uh, stability, you see uh, a clear core, orthodox core, if you will, uh, and in many ways, then the the, the the next step is just to further standardize and formalize, uh, you know, some of those as you mentioned in in, in actual crete form or in some of the conciliar documents. But 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 uh, y- already you have a tremendous uh, degree of unity, which obviously is ultimately grounded in. Mm-hmm. In uh, the apostolic uh, teaching, which is mm-hmm. mentioned in uh, in Acts two forty two, the early church were, was devoted to the apostles' teaching, and again that goes back in many ways to Jesus' teaching, which of again course, yeah. is grounded in the teaching yeah. in the Old Testament. Yeah. So uh, you have this uh, this this organic uh, unity that. Uh, that uh, is, is very compelling, uh, and,
1: and I think it flies in the face of the narrative because you know the narratives, and we were talking about this earlier today in, mm-hmm. in some of our discussions and uh, the Q and A time after the chapel. Which is, there's a narrative today that 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 all of this is by heavy-handed political power, right? And and what our modern culture wants to say is, well, you can't trust Christianity because it's all the result. What they believe is just the result of of a power move by people who are in charge imposing their beliefs on the church, but. But in the second century, you don't have that. And so what's strange to me right. is that wouldn't they find it compelling that there was a grassroots, widespread, bottom-up rather than top-down uh, belief system? That you'd think that would be enough to convince them that, wait a second, maybe there's something about Christianity that that is believed not because someone told you to believe it, but because mm-hmm. it actually has roots that go back uh, to the very beginning. hmm
0: Christians were persecuted minority. As you mentioned, they didn't have ecclesiastical clout to, mm-hmm. to enforce uh, beliefs on others. They were in many ways just uh, trying to cope uh, with, with mm-hmm. persecution and and false teaching in some cases as well. Uh, to, uh, to turn to chapter 6 out of 7, so kind of uh, moving uh, toward the end of your book, uh, another fascinating chapter where you uh, point out that it's uh, – Today, often fashionable to stress the oral character uh, of early Christianity, uh, but um, in in chapter six of uh, of Christianity at the Crossroads, you uh, mount a vigorous defense of what you call the textual culture of the early Christian movement. You say, and I have a, a quote here. I think it's very helpful for our listeners there from page two hundred. You say that from the beginning. Christianity had a distinctive textual identity that was rooted in its Jewish heritage and manifested in an impressive and voluminous production of new books. Uh, Christianity wrote all sorts of books, doctrinal treatises, apologetic works, sermons, commentaries, letters, gospels, acts, and apocalypses. And this prolific literary production is one of the reasons why the Roman world viewed Christianity as more of a philosophy than a religion. Uh, you even speak of publication networks, and uh, among other things, you uh, you adduce the so-called uh, nomina sacra mm-hmm. as evidence for the bookish nature of early Christianity. Of course, nomina sacra being uh, abbreviated uh, forms in the Greek of, 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 of sacred names such as Jesus or Christ or, or God. Uh, can you... Give our listeners a sense of just the essence of of that particular argument.
1: Yeah, one of the things I think that's a, a misunderstanding out there about early Christianity, and and you know I've talked about this is the idea that it was an oral religion, um, and people have this idea that hey, and no one really cared about books in the early Christian movement. No one really wanted to write anything down. It was all oral. And for that matter, of course, the side note is untrustworthy. But but anyway, regardless, it was oral, and so. The whole idea of a written New Testament canon, therefore anything written, is, is portrayed as this artificial, imposed move that, that early Christians would have resisted because they were an oral culture. The problem with that is the evidence is against it almost at every turn. Um, you know, I make the argument that, that Christians indeed were not an oral culture, but very textually based. And, and it's not enough simply to observe that Christians couldn't read or write for the most part. You know, they, people point out the illiteracy of Christianity uh, early Christian movement and and my response is yeah so they're in good company because everybody in the ancient world was was that way um, and what made the difference is is that lurking behind the, the the teachings of the early Christian movement was were texts even if someone couldn't them, themselves read those texts they were read to them or, uh, orally and out loud and so text determined the entire. Christian movement. And of course, as I noted, Christians began to write and they began to write in in, in serious quantities in and all kinds of different uh ways. So from front to back, Christian Christianity was marked by textuality. And so as as you read in the quote I had there, um, th- this confused the Greco Roman world immensely. They they did not know what to do with a so called religion that didn't act like one because that's not religion religions don't do that. Um, and so as you noted, and is well known now, they were regarded as a philosophy, not a religion. Um, they were not like any religion they had ever known. And so Christians were seen as this bookish movement that was very philosophical, uh, because of their commitment to books. And, and truthfully, that's has, that has an application point today too. I, I think that we've got a we can't forget that we're a bookish movement, uh, and that we mm-hmm. have this intellectual dimension. We, there is a sense in which we're kind of like a philosophical movement I and mean, we're not a philosophy, but there is a sense in which we want to be thinkers and readers and textual people as the earliest Christians were.
0: And just like you talked about the rule of faith earlier and and the significance of of it for arguing for the unity of the early Christian movement, can you make a similar argument uh, regarding the nomina sacra? Maybe you can explain that a bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the phenomenal things we see uh, within the early Christian manuscript tradition is a certain scribal habits that Mm -hmm. scribes everywhere seem to employ. And there's many of these, but one of them, of course, is the nomina sacra, which is Latin for sacred names. Mm -hmm. And it's a reference to, as you already noted, that the way that that scribes would abbreviate certain words in Greek, and they're the words that we translate into Jesus, Christ, Lord, uh, and God. And those four words are the original nomina sacra. What's curious about it is that the nomina sacra were were, were, were present, that kind of unique abbreviation was present as far back as we can see. We, we, we can hardly find a manuscript without it. And it's as widespread as we can see. It's it's everywhere across the empire. And so scholars have said, how do you have that kind of scribal visual identity marker in a manuscript come to be out of nothing? You know That, 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 that implies some level of scribal culture Mm -hmm. that, 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 that implies some level of scribal cooperation Mm -hmm. and, and relative sophistication actually to have that sort of, uh, unity. And so it's a, people don't realize that the nominous sacra are a visual identity marker. It allows you to look at a manuscript and see that it's a Christian manuscript. And so therefore it's, it already is evidence of an early Christian textual culture. And that, that is something that we're told couldn't be, but yet there it is.
0: You know, I think that's little known, but deserves to be known more widely. And, uh, uh, you know, just as a little point of interest, uh, I followed this, uh, you know, the uh, publicity of of that recent publication of the famous uh, uh, Mark Gospel, Mm -hmm. Mark Papyrus Mm -hmm. from, I think, the second century, Uh, speaking of the second century. And I, I seem to remember that, you know, as I compared the text with the the text we have in our various Greek editions of the New Testament it is identical, which that was remarkable into mm-hmm. you know, the stability of the text. But the one thing that I also noticed, if I remember correctly, is that you have a nom, nomen sacrum yes. uh, for uh, the word spirit, Numa.
1: Oh, fascinating! I don't think I knew that. Right. Um, so I don't because Numa is a is a unique instance <laughs> exactly. of the nomen sacrum. It's not
0: as common, you know. And again, this is fairly early. Yeah. Uh, and so again, it, it just shows that that scribal culture extended even to words such as spirit, even beyond you know God, Christ. That actually Lord.
1: would change, and eh, you know, I don't want to get too far into <laughs> the Numenius Sacra here, but that would actually change actually our understanding of the way the nomina Sacra developed because most mm-hmm. of us. Yeah. Don't think that Numa really kicked into, this, well, into the that system early. And that early. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I wonder if that's why they've also tagged, and I don't know this to be the mm-hmm. case, uh, a potential third century date. Because I think, isn't it hovering on the end right. of the second, and third yes, century? Yes, yes. I, I wonder yeah. if that's part of it. Uh, it could be paleographical, too, in terms of the handwriting, but the, but sure. Numa was a later yeah. uh, move in yeah. the Nomina Sacrament. Yeah. So. yeah.
0: Well, the final chapter in your book is, uh, is called A New Scripture. And there you discuss the status of the New Testament canon in the second century, of course. uh, Some, such as uh, Bart Ehrman, would dispute that there was such a thing as a canon consciousness as early as the second century. Uh, Can you briefly summarize your argument in this chapter for our listeners, please?
1: Yeah, so the whole theme of the book has been that the second century was transitional in all these key areas. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, And that may be as true for canon as anywhere because canon really took its core form, if you will, in the 2nd century. Um, so much so that that when people tell you there's not a canon until the 4th century, which is a common argument today, um, the 2nd century solves that claim. Because if you go back into the 2nd century and have a look around, you'll find out very quickly, and I make the case in this chapter for this, but there seems to be a core canon of books pretty well established uh, in this time period. And by core, I mean... 21, 22 out of the 27 seem to be in place and fairly steady by the middle and certainly by the late second century. And this is true in so many different sources. It's certainly true in Irenaeus. Um, It's true in the earliest canonical list, which is still the Moratorian canon or known as the Moratorian fragment. Mm -hmm. It's true in Clement of Alexandria. It's it's, it's Theophilus of Antioch. Uh, It's true, certainly to some extent, in Tertullian. I mean, everything that's lurking at the back end of the second century Mm -hmm. all exhibits this. This core canon, and so what you realize then is, is that 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 the whatever you can say about the canon, it what what was already going to happen had already happened by the second century, or at least by the middle of it, so that it actually stayed there quite a ways till the fourth, and was finally solidified. Mm-hmm. And so the second century seems to be a key transitional point in that in that development.
0: And again, it it seems uh, dubious, uh, doesn't it, to to basically you set the bar so high that you'd say unless there was unanimity and perfect consensus in the church on all 27 New Testament books. There was no canon consciousness whatsoever.
1: Yeah, well, that's, that's of course, the move that, that Sunberg and others make, which is, you, you put it well, they set the bar so high for what can count as a canon mm. that, that you're not allowed to use that word, they tell us, until you have absolute consensus, no exceptions anywhere, uniformity yeah. across the board, which, of course, if that were the standard, you wouldn't even have a cannon today, actually, which is the <laughs> funny thing. Uh, but leaving that aside, I think that's just an unfair standard. I, I think we don't have to ask the question that way. I think we can ask the question, what what, what books were Christians generally using in Scripture? And when we ask the question that way, it's actually quite clear what they were using as Scripture for the most part. And so the fact that there's these fuzzy boundaries around the outside and, and to some extent some some of the smaller books that needed to be uh, uh, sort of solved and their, their status, I don't think that changes the, 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 the clear bulk that's already there.
0: Yeah, and certainly as, as you and I discussed earlier today, when it comes to the Gospels, for example, oh, yeah. there's no question whatsoever
1: Yeah, it's very clear there, as many scholars, Chuck Hill and others, have shown.
0: Right, right. Well, Mike, we've greatly appreciated your ministry among us this week, and I'm sure our listeners will be blessed by your insights regarding the Christian canon and the nature of early Christianity. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us, and every blessing on you and on your ministry at RTS and beyond.
1: Thanks so much. So good to be with
0: you. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.